Our reading tonight is from the book of Judges, chapter 10, starting at verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be healed over all who live, will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so that we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, the Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what do you have against me? that you have attacked my country. The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peacefully. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They, they sent also to the king of Moab 
and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, sent Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right do you have to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aroah, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the disputes this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aroah to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel, Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition 
that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. The Ephraimite forces were called out and they crossed over to Zaphon. They said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn down your house over your head. Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw that you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me the victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. And whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied no, they said, All right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at that time. Jephthah led Israel for six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. This is God's word. I bet you're glad you brought your friend to church tonight. Never been before, and that's the reading. Let's pray for God's help as we look at it together. Our Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all of it is useful. And we pray that it would be for our blessing and your glory as we listen to your spirit speak to us now. Amen. Uh, let me add my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the Associate Minister here, and it's uh, lovely to be taking you through this incredible passage tonight. Now, I've been uh, watching Chernobyl, the, um, the box set. I'm not sure if you've seen it. Uh, as far as uh, laugh, laugh out loud, sort of light-hearted evening entertainment, watching people die from radiation sickness is not really right up there, but it is incredibly good drama. It's absolutely phenomenal. Now, the basic facts, I think most of us know in April, whatever it was, the, the 26th, 1986, reactor number four in Chernobyl in the Ukraine, um, it blew up and released a huge amount of radioactive uh, material and devastated that area of uh, Eastern Europe for, for a long, long time. I knew all of that, but what I hadn't realized until I watched the, uh, the box set was just quite how utterly unnecessary most of the deaths were. Uh, two things. Firstly, they knew that there was a flaw in the reactor. They knew about it. But the guy who wrote the report pointing out this dangerous flaw in the reactor, in the kill switch, we well, had his report suppressed because the KGB deemed that it was uh, not good for the reputation of the Soviet state and their scientific community if it was known that there was such a flaw. So the engineers had no idea that there was this dangerous flaw. 
Secondly, when they reported the levels of radiation, when they're working out how much of the area to, to evacuate, how many people to get to, to get to move out the area, they reported the highest levels that they deemed acceptable for propaganda purposes rather than the real levels. Because it would be just too shaming to admit quite how appalling the actual outbreak was. So lots of people were not evacuated and died of radiation poisoning. Lots of people had babies born with birth defects because of the radiation poisoning that they weren't warned about. Lots of people developed cancer early because they weren't warned because it was too shaming. They tried to make a radioactive leak palatable. All those deaths because people just wouldn't face up to uncomfortable truths. That's the awful thing that emerges, especially in the final episode. Now, there is a danger, I think, that that is exactly what happens with this passage tonight. Because as Christians, we come to the Bible and the, the more awkward and ugly episodes, and we're just tempted to water them down, to, to find a message in them that's palatable to us. And so a number of people, uh, as I was reading and studying for this, I found a number of people, they reinterpret Jephthah's vow as being that his daughter must remain a virgin for all of her life and never get married, rather than that he actually kills her. Because they just, they can't, they can't bring themselves to accept that God's judge could do something so utterly wicked, sacrifice his own child. I have to say that would make this chapter a whole lot easier to preach. Change the message entirely. It'd be far less troublesome to, to us when we already feel that we get so much attack from, from friends and from culture because the Bible is seen as violent and oppressive and narrow and demeaning to women. It would be so much easier if, if, we, if we could just make this passage a little more palatable. But the danger is we do exactly what the authorities did at Chernobyl. We trade, well, we trade ugly reality for a sweet fiction. And here we substitute what we think God should say or do for what God has actually said. And we're very poor. We're much poorer as a result. You see, the book of Judges, as we've been seeing again and again, it warns us about our tendency to put our trust in people and especially in Christian leaders. See, the problem is, when we put leaders on pedestals, we will eventually find out they don't belong on pedestals. They are only human. But if you've got an airbrushed view of these, these great gleaming Christian saints, well, when they do prove to have feet of clay like everybody else, when they do prove to be sinful like everybody else, we'll be crushed and our faith will be rocked because we put so much trust in them and, uh, and now they've let us down. And if we fail to learn the lessons of the ugly chapters of Judges, We'll never really put all our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the Bible calls us to. We'll always functionally actually be trusting in this amazing writer who just makes sense of the Christian faith, this great speaker who just always seems to have the answers rather than the Lord Jesus Christ. And humans will always, always fail us. That's what we do. Judges 10 to 12 are basically a sobering lesson as we see the damage that can be done when someone is filled with the Holy Spirit's power but is shaped by the attitudes of this world. That's Jephthah, full of the Holy Spirit's power but utterly shaped by the thinking of this world. And this passage should help us as we look at the mess he makes to long for the leader who is the Lord Jesus. Okay, um, as uh, Sav has said, we're in the middle of a series working through the book of Judges, and we're now in the second cycle 
of Judges. You get these cycles where there are similar things go on. And we're in the second cycle. And in this cycle, we get three judges. We get Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And each time, there's much more focus on the character of the judges. And it's, it's not pretty. It's basically a coward, fool, and thug. It could be a, you know, your, your subheadings for these chapters. It doesn't make for flattering reading. And in line with everything else that we've seen in Judges, it's not just a cycle that repeats again and again. It's a spiral that goes down and down and gets worse and worse and worse. And what I want to do is, uh, yes, you've got an eight-point outline, uh, the fear that that engenders in people. What We're going to walk pretty briskly. It's just to show you how the passage works. But we're going to move pretty briskly through the passage, the first five points, and then just settle down to think for a few minutes. So what? What are the lessons we can learn? So let's, uh, let's punch through. And what we'll see is, bizarrely, for a passage that's all about a war, the war between the Ammonites and Israel, the action doesn't take place on the battlefield. The action is really all in dialogue. The whole thing breaks down into five dialogues, as we'll see. So firstly, Israel and God. And this is all about corruption and compassion. So look with me at verse 6. Judges 10, verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry. The writer really goes for it here, piling up the words to show how utterly wicked Israel had become. And I think the point is, look, this isn't just some momentary little slip. It's not that they're, you know, they're basically a good nation, really trying to serve the God of the Bible, and they, they, just, oh, they just had a, a weak moment. They were tired, and they gave in to temptation. Now, this is a, this is a people that are, they have basically, there's not, there's not a God or an idol around that they've not turned to worship. I mean, it's extraordinary the lengths they've gone to to worship anybody other than the God of the Bible. This isn't a husband who, uh, he had a sort of flirtatious, drink after work with a colleague, and it was, it was just one drink, utterly racked with guilt, goes home, confesses to his wife, and changes everything. No, no, this is the husband who's having multiple affairs at work, going to strip clubs all the time, and laughing about it behind his wife's back in front of his colleagues. That's Israel in these chapters. It's appalling. And God's response is just. He became angry with them, verse 7. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years, they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah. Benjamin and Ephraim and Israel was in great distress. But actually, it's the next verses that really bring home quite what a mess Israel is in. Verse 10, the Israelites cried to the Lord, we've sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Mayanites oppressed you and you cried for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you've chosen. Let them save you when you're in trouble. See, God knows his people. He knows full well that they're not sorry about their sin. They're just sorry about their suffering. Their, their cry here is like a, a child who's warned, look, if you keep hitting your little sister, there will be no ice cream for you. Do you understand? Look, I've warned you, don't keep hitting your little sister or there is going to be no ice cream. Last warning. 
and then they hit the little sister again. Right, no ice cream. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to do it. No, you're not sorry. You just want ice cream. All of us have done that as children. That's what Israel's doing. There's no real repentance, no real sorrow sorrow for the offense against God. It's just, oh, it hurts. Please make it stop. We'll say anything. We'll do anything, but it hurts. I want it to stop. And God says, look, you made your bed. Now you lie in it. You serve the idols. Let them save you. Now, God's not being cruel and vindictive here, actually. He's being wise and he's being loving. If he were to just immediately, as soon as Israel says the word, saves them, we've seen what happens. Actually, it just enables their behavior. It just encourages them to keep doing it. Whenever we get in trouble, just play the card. Sorry, God. Great. Thank you for saving us. I'll just get back on with serving the idols. Let's not actually throw them away this time. Just, you know, put them in a cupboard. We'll get them out as soon as the trouble's passed. And God says no. Now, it is hard to know what to make of the next couple of verses, verse 15 to 16. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And he could bear Israel's misery no longer. It may be that this finally is true repentance. What is beyond doubt, though, is that ultimately the game changer is that God could bear Israel's misery no longer. It's not their cries, it's God's compassion that makes things change, which is just extraordinary. The heart of the holy, pure, perfect, cannot tolerate sin, God, aches for the suffering of a people who are getting no more than they deserve. He could bear Israel's misery no longer. Now, the full weight of those words only becomes really clear much later when God parts the heavens and enters the world. And when you read about the agony of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary, you understand what these words mean. God says, I would rather myself bear the pain of wrathful punishment for sin and the curse of death. I would rather bear that myself than let you bear it. That's what's being said at Calvary. God can bear the misery of his people no longer. The only hope for a corrupt people is the compassion of God. Secondly, Jephthah and Gilead, desperation and opportunism. Opportunism. Okay, so who's going to save Israel? Now, Jephthah, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You're not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered round him and they followed him. It's not the most promising of starts, is it? But then every time God's salvation appears in the Bible, it comes from somewhere unpromising. And usually it's an unpromising birth too. The point is, we ought to be able to spot the pattern when finally a virgin in a poor family gets pregnant with God's mighty saviour. God's saviour always comes from somewhere unexpected. Uh, and Now here, you've got some irony going on. Uh, the land of Tov, verse 3. Tov means good. So Jephthah, born because his father committed adultery with a prostitute, now surrounded by scoundrels and bandits, lives in the land of good. 
It's all irony. Now, the discussion that then takes place between the leaders of Gilead and Jephthah is parallel with the discussion between Israel and God. It's exactly the same pattern. Um, Verse 4, you get the initial request, please come and save us. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tov. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight against the Ammonites. Jephthah said, didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now that you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us and fight the Ammonites and you'll be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? So again, you get the initial request, rebuffed. No, no, we really want you, and it's accepted. And Jephthah rightly points out, hang on a second. You rejected me, and now you want me just because you need me. But do you notice what changes things? What was it that changed things for God? It's his compassionate heart for Israel. What changes things for Jephthah? The opportunity. Ah, I could rule. I get to be the king. That suits me rather well. I'll tell you what, I'll fight for you so long as I get to reign. He's very, very different from God. Desperation and opportunism. That's what we see in Jephthah and Gilead. Then Jephthah and Ammon, and we get fiction and history. So jump forward to chapter 11 and verse 12. Now this is the high point for Jephthah in the second half of 11 as he engages in a diplomatic dialogue with the king of Ammon. Verse 12, then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, what have you against me that you've attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers. When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok, all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king saying, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. Now, the king of Ammon tries to claim that all he's doing is just retaking land that Israel had illegally occupied, which is basically a tissue of whoppers. Uh, Jephthah, though, knows the history of God's salvation from the book of Numbers. And as he explains in the following verses, no, that's not what happened. When, uh, When God rescued his people out of Egypt and they're heading towards the promised land, a lot of the surrounding kings refused them passage through their territory. And it was, this, this land was never owned by the Ammonites at all. It was owned by the Amorites. And the Amorites tried to destroy Israel and fought against them. And so God gave the whole territory into the hands of Israel and had the Amorites destroyed. It never belonged to the Ammonites. And it certainly wasn't stolen from them by Israel. And after countering this fiction with history, Jephthah lays down a challenge. He moves from, from history to theology. He basically says, all right, let's trust ourselves to our gods. Us to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, you to Chemosh, your God. And let's see who rules. Verse 23. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before this people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord, our God, has given us, we will possess. Verse 27. I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. And this is the high point. This is Jephthah at his very best. This is why the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 11 says he's an example of faith that triumphs over the odds and trusts in God. 
But the king of Ammon is in no mood to listen to reason. Verse 28, the king of Ammon paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Fourth, Jephthah and his daughter, faithlessness and folly. Talk about coming back down to earth with a crash. And you can tell, you can tell something is just not right, just from the proportions of what goes on. You get two verses, just two verses, tell you the whole story of the victory over the Ammonites. Two paragraphs tell you the tragic mess of what Jephthah does next. Things start to go wrong immediately, verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. The spirit of the Lord descending on him is just not enough. No, he needs something else. And so he makes a bargain. Well, actually, he bribes, tries to bribe God. He says, look, I tell you what, if you give me victory, I'll give you something that's very precious to me. Fair? Is that a deal, God? That is not faith. That's faithless failure to trust God. He's saying, God can't be trusted to do it, so I'm going to twist his arm. I'm going to make a bargain with him. I'm going to tie him into a deal. That's actually paganism. Uh, getting things out of a reluctant God by sacrificing to him until he has to do what you want. What happens next? Well, he gets the victory, 32 to 33. But 34 to 35 ought to be heartbreaking as to his horror. It is his daughter, his daddy's little girl who comes out of the house. I say it ought to be heartbreaking. Listen to what actually is said, especially what Jephthah says. Verse 34, when Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Notice who he has no concern for, her. Look what you've done to me. Look at the distress you've brought upon me. I'm going to kill you. Uh, look, at, look at how distressing that's going to be for me. I mean, can you imagine how self-centered the man must be? His only grief is for himself, for his loss, for the fact that his family name will not continue. Even as, he, even as he's preparing to kill his own daughter, it is his feelings that are all that matter. Now, the truth is that as you look through the book of Judges, you see that the more the people of God turn away from the word of God, the more those who are physically vulnerable will suffer. And it will not make for pleasant reading. And in particular, over the coming weeks, you'll see the treatment of women just gets worse and worse and worse. You think, can it really get worse than this? Oh, yes, I'm afraid it does. How so different it is when God's true king and true judge, the Lord Jesus, arrives. You know, when you read the gospel accounts and see how Jesus treats women, how he values and protects and honors them, Judges makes you long for a leader like that as you see how wicked and brutal things get. But I guess the question in our minds is, why doesn't God stop 
to death. Verse 38, Jephthah lets her go for two months, and she and her friends went into the hills and wept that she would never marry. And after two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he vowed. Why on earth doesn't God stop him? I mean, God's good at that. Do you remember back in Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham's raising his knife to sacrifice Isaac, tied on the altar, and just as he's about to plunge the knife into his son, God thunders from heaven, stop, do not touch the boy. So why on earth doesn't God stop Jephthah? His daughter is utterly innocent. She's the only person who emerges with real credit in this account. Back in Genesis 22, Abraham is being obedient and faithful, and God stops him. Here in Judges 11, Jephthah is being foolish and faithless, and God never told him to make this vow. Look, I need to say this carefully, but I want to say it very clearly. God is under no obligation to stop you from suffering the earthly consequences of your sinful actions. God is under no obligation to stop you from suffering the earthly consequences of the faithless, sinful things you and I do. We live in a world where there's natural order of cause and effect, spiritually as well as physically. And we are deluded if we think we can just wander off down painful, sinful paths, trusting God will never let me go too far. God will never let me get in too much trouble. Sometimes God allows us to suffer the consequences of our sinful actions. And the results, well, the results are usually utterly miserable for us and for those we love. But God is under no obligation to stop you from suffering the earthly consequences of your sinful actions. Jephthah finds that out and his daughter dies. Fifthly, Jephthah and Ephraim, Ephraim, pride and pronunciation. The last verses, they just continue Jephthah's miserable descent. Uh, So Ephraim was the leading tribe in Israel at the time, and their pride was rather piqued that they did not have a more central role in the victory. So chapter 12, the Ephraimite forces were called out, and they crossed to Zaphon, and they said to Jephthah, why did you go to fight the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? We're going to burn your house over your head, which is unpleasant. Jephthah answered, I and my people are engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands, crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me victory. Now, why have you come to fight today? Now, at this point, Jephthah has an option. Will he unite Israel's tribes with tact and diplomacy and a humble willingness to accept the offense and overlook the provocation? Verse 4, Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades from Ephraim and Manasseh. The Gileadites captured the fords of Jordan leading to Ephraim, and whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. If he said Sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords. 42,000 Ephraimites were killed. You know, we never hear how many Ammonite soldiers are killed, but 42,000 
of God's own people fall to the sword of Jephthah. Jonathan Swift uh, wrote his, um, his novel, Gulliver's Travels. Apparently, it was too subtle, the allegory, for people to get. But part of it was, was just to show how stupid and foolish the politics of his day was. And he writes about it, I'm sure you'll, you'll know, the, about the war between Lilliput and Blefuscu, over which end of a boiled egg you should crack first. Is it the pointy end or the more rounded end? And it was a deliberately ridiculous story to highlight how foolish, how unnecessary, and how just warped so much human warfare is. And I think we're given the shibboleth, sibboleth detail for the same reason. 42,000 die because they lisp. Okay, so what? It's a, it's just, it's a weird and, and perplexing account. What are we to make of it? Three things for us. Live, look long. Live according to God's word, not our world. Look to the Lord, not human leaders, and long for a better savior. Firstly, live according to God's word. I think that is the biggest lesson for us in this episode, which might seem a bit odd. I mean, where is there anything about the word of the Lord in this episode? Well, let me ask you this question. What on earth made Jephthah think it was a good idea to sacrifice his daughter? What on earth made him think that that would be something that the God of the Bible would like? I mean, why would he think that? The God of the Bible says again and again, I hate that sort of behavior. That's one of the reasons that the Israelites were sent into the land of Canaan, because the Canaanites were so wicked that they were killing their own children to worship their gods. Uh, Jeremiah 32, 35, God says when Israel starts to do this, they've built high places to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I never commanded, nor did it ever enter my mind that they do such a detestable thing. You cannot read the Bible and think sacrificing children is something that would please God. But the gods of the Moabites, the Amorites and the Ammonites, gods like Chemosh, who's mentioned in this passage, well, we know that they were worshipped by child sacrifice. The Bible tells us, and archaeologists have dug up the temples with all these pottery pots with the charred remains of babies inside, used in worship. Now you see, Jephthah thought this was a good idea. This was how you do things, because Jephthah ignored the word of God. And instead, Jephthah was serving God in ways that kind of made sense in the culture around him. It was just normal in that culture. You got a huge request, like, got to win a battle. Well, I better sacrifice a child. That's just what you do. Hundreds of generations later, Christians in Britain and America got involved in the slave trade. How on earth could they have done that? Well, simple. They ignored God's word and they adopted the morals of the culture around them. What about today? What about us? Are there areas of life where we, where you, ignore what the Bible says and instead just go along with the thinking of our culture. And here's the thing. Might there not be some areas of life which you and I think, look, it's fine, it's no big deal, that future generations of Christians will look back at our behavior the way that you and I tonight are looking back at Jephthah, absolutely appalled, saying, how could they have done that? And rather more importantly, might it not be possible that the Lord God looks on at some of the things we approve of, some of the things we do, and he feels about them 
the way he felt about the child sacrifice. See, the striking thing about Jephthah is he's very clear about God's salvation. He knows the history of Israel from the book of Numbers. Clear on how God saves, just doesn't follow God's ways in the day-to-day of life. What about you? It's very, very possible that there are a number of us who are clear that we trust Jesus for salvation from our sins. Oh, yeah, yeah, the cross is how I'm saved from sins. I trust in Jesus. But day-to-day, the Bible has very little impact on how we run our lives and we allow our culture to shape us. What determines your views on sexual ethics, relationships, on career, on consumerism? Is it our culture, peer group, or God and the wisdom of his word? Now be honest, who are you really listening to when it comes to the really hot button issues, abortion, same-sex relationships, greed, consumerism? Not whose voice shouts loudest, but whose voice do you listen to? God, our wise creator, doesn't make mistakes. And when he tells us to live one way, it is the best way. Do you believe that? Live according to his word. Even when it puts you out of step with friends and colleagues, even when it gets mocked and excluded, even when it gets you called narrow-minded and fundamentalist, bigoted, wrong side of history, whatever the label is, live according to his word. It's the only way of freedom and fullness. Live according to God's word, not our world. Secondly, uh, briefly, look to the Lord, not human leaders. I think the other thing this passage really warns about is don't put too much faith in human leaders. We've seen it again and again in Judges, but it's rather glaring here. Gifting and godliness are two very different things. Just because someone's a brilliant preacher or writer or leader, that does not make them godly. It doesn't mean that they won't be struggling with pride or anger or looking at porn or being greedy or longing for financial security and comfort or neglecting their family or, frankly, all of them. I remember talking to a, um, a director of a missionary agency a few years back. And I was absolutely shocked to hear the second most common reason for missionaries having to leave the mission field. Do you know what it was? Addiction to pornography. But they're missionaries. Yeah. But if you fail to learn the lessons of Judges 10 to 12 and of Jephthah, well, we'll think, well, Christian leaders could never be like that. And we won't put in safeguards to protect church leaders. We'll be much slower to challenge bad behavior. And we'll excuse it or explain it. Well, they've been, I mean, they've been greatly used by God. I'm just not sure I could believe that happened. And we'll be tempted to put far too much faith in Christian leaders, in Christian writers. And when they do fall, we'll be devastated. It'll feel as if our faith is rocked, and it will be rocked because our faith has been in the leaders, not in the Lord. Of course, it's not just what we expect from Christian leaders. It's also about ourselves and each other. The Bible teaches, look, if you, if you, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, go away from sin. And he's given you his Holy Spirit to enable us to fight sin, to turn away from it. But the Bible also makes it clear that we won't be free of sin until the Lord Jesus returns. And so we need to develop as a culture, uh, as a church, a culture of openness and honesty where we talk about the struggles with our sin. We can, be, we can be open about what's actually going on inside of our hearts and lovingly hold each other to account. 
But no one here is ever going to admit to anything serious if they keep hearing people say things like, oh, a Christian could never do something like that. No, they couldn't couldn't be a Christian if they did that. Phrases like that just stop anybody ever admitting anything. Jephthah, he's strong, decisive, courageous, and full of the Holy Spirit. Jephthah is proud, faithless, foolish, vindictive, and full of sin. Jephthah's a human, and so are you, and so am I. But of course, there is, there is something better to say at the end. Jephthah was indeed proud, foolish, and vindictive. And yet God was able to use him to liberate the people from the Ammonites. But imagine, just imagine what Jephthah might have been able to achieve if he'd been godly. If he'd trusted God rather than tried to bribe him. If he'd cared about saving Israel rather than becoming the leader. If he'd not made a foolish vow. If he'd responded to Ephraim's insult with grace and wisdom. Imagine if, what he could have achieved. Of course, you don't have to imagine We're told that the Lord Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is not like Jephthah, and praise God he's not, because he is able to save us from our sins. He is the only religious leader with no embarrassing moments, no character flaws, no self-promotion, no swaying to our culture's voice. He was and lived for truth. And the central event of Jesus' life, of course, is not sacrificing other people to ensure his victory, but sacrificing himself to ensure our salvation. And that's why Jesus alone is worthy of all your admiration and worship. He is the leader to follow and the truth to look to and the voice to listen to. Don't put too much trust in other Christians, especially not Christian leaders, their talks, their books. When you do that, when you're always talking about one leader, when you tell your friends, when you're just, when actually you think if only they could hear this speaker or read this book, that that would convince them. You make yourself a hostage to the failures of that leader. And when friends mock us because yet another Christian leader has had an affair or turned their back on the faith, you know, the answer is that Christianity has never been built on the excellence of Christian leaders. Christianity is built on the perfection of Jesus Christ. It's him I trust, not the sinful leaders who amazingly he uses. It's him we trust. And you can never put too much trust in Jesus Christ. You can never fear that if you build your life on him that he'll let you down. He is worthy of endless praise and ultimate devotion. So follow him closely. Trust him for salvation Yes, but also trust him for all of life. He is countercultural. He'll put you out of step with the world, but he is the eternal judge. And if you live for him, you will not be eternally shamed. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, 
we lament at the miserable mess caused by this man, this Jephthah. We confess that our hearts are full of sin too and we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his perfection, for his salvation and for his sinless, glorious work. Amen.